Hello, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part four of a series about reading the Bible. This is called Reading the Bible Through the Lens of Protein Folding. For science-minded people, I think a good way to think of salvation history is uh, in the Bible is to consider it in the light of something called protein folding. And this is where the same protein has different structures. And in primary structure, it is very different than that of what is called quaternary structure. So the same protein becomes something completely different in each stage. And until um, you might say the fullness of time for that protein arrives um, for what we would call in salvation history, the incarnation through Mary, the protein has not reached its purposeful state. So um, until a protein folds into a certain shape, it cannot perform its function. And hemoglobin in your cells is a very um, great illustration of that because it carries oxygen to your cells and it wouldn't happen until it got to this certain level of folding. So this is a marvelous thing to study in science. And I have a hard time believing that people don't recognize the genius of God in this amazingly simple yet incredibly complex topic of protein folding. But then I'm someone who can look at a blade of grass or a leaf or you see a squirrel Uh, or a bird, and you can see the wonder and awe of God. So maybe I'm strange like that. Um, But it is truly mind-blowing that the same peptide chain um, can configure into different shapes that have wildly different purposes and usages. So there's primary protein structure, secondary protein structure, tertiary, and then quaternary. And there's an image in this uh, post if you want to see it. And um, I just borrowed it from Khan Academy and linked to it. So Anyway, I realize this is quite a leap from reading the Bible, and in our series, we've now talked about reading the Bible in the light of professional wrestling, and reading it in the light of Apocalypse Now, and reading it in the light of um, a goose in a concrete jungle, but protein folding may help us see that the world of, say, Adam and Cain is different than that of Noah, and then that of Abraham, and that of Moses, and that of Jesus. So each covenant with these people is a fold toward that fullness of time that Jesus speaks of when he arrives. The salvation history is kind of like folding into something else, something different each time. So um, when you go from Adam, where there's no law, really, um, you get to Moses, then there's the Mosaic covenant, you have changes, it's different, things are different. So, um, and, and related to this, It's also a way of seeing differently once you fold as an individual. So if we're not just talking about reading the Bible that way, you can read your life in this way. Um, Here's a little anecdote. I once heard a person describe his awakening from uh, addiction this way. Throughout his life, he felt as if he was holding a big piece of construction paper in front of his face and was never able to see much, like a big purple or black piece of construction paper. And somewhere on this sheet of construction paper, he said there were two eye holes. And now and then he would shift the paper so that the eye holes lined up with his eyes for a bit and he could see. Uh, And then once he began to pray and work toward a relationship with God, he could see more often. And now he said he can see because he is in the right position. He's lined his eyes up with the eye holes. But really, he says that his sight was positioned for him. Something higher shifted him and the paper to allow the light to hit his retinas. And this is similar to how this protein folding metaphor works. The same chemical compound is present, but in order to become useful in a new way, a shift must happen. It's a shape shift. 
for anyone who likes Greek mythology, there's the shape-shifting gods. Proteins are kind of like that. They can change shape, and then they are like a completely different thing. Um, although it is the exact same protein, it is not the same shape after the folding and can suddenly do new things. It's the equivalent of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, which is the most mind-blowing thing of nature, I think, to this day that I cannot, it, it blows my mind. But um, once we are turned into the right shape, we unlock the next phase or we level up, as gamers would say. So we can see this folding and changing in the sacred text of the Bible. So if Adam is like the primary structure of a protein, Moses is like the quaternary structure in this metaphor. He unlocks new meaning in salvation history. Both are men, but they reach new heights as salvation history unfolds. And Jesus is infinitely beyond Moses because it is he, God incarnate, who took on our human shape, but also made the atoms that form all the proteins in the first place. He's the second person of the three-in-one, the Trinity, who holds the, in, the gravitational constant in perfect position to allow such miracles of physics to happen repeatedly. Um, occasionally, God even pokes his finger into the laws of physics and nature to say, walk on water, or he'll just walk with us in our trials. And we call these moments miracles because they break the laws of physics. In God's plan, somehow the descendants of Cain, you know, we've been talking about Cain in this series a bit, helped lead to this fourth folding. Um, and now we await in this final folding, we're in what was called the Messianic Age, when the marriage of heaven and earth happen. We don't really know how that's going to happen, although the catechism has some some good general comments on it. But of course, we don't understand it fully because we are not God. We are like dogs looking at humans and pondering their behavior, or like me observing the goose on the exit ramp and wondering why there are cars. Um, the goose, the dog, the me, none of them are God. But the two animals in that list are living probably more in alignment with God's will than I am, even though I'm trying. Um, somehow, someway, cities and weapons and family breakdown is all allowed in God's plan. So going back through the series, the geese that you're getting hit on the exit ramp is part of the plan. Um, our history from Cain onward of scarring and ripping God's plentiful earth is, is somehow part of this plan um, that, you know, we're supposed to not do that, yet we but people do it. Um, just like many every other sin. So the chosen people, the Israelites, they um, they attacked and killed these uh, the giant clans in the in the Canaanites. Uh, that was part of the plan. And then they themselves were slaughtered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and eventually the Romans as part of the plan. And Caesar killed a few million people in the Gallic Wars as part of God's plan that preceded the fullness of time when Jesus arrived. And since the resurrection, we've, have, we've had ever larger wars and plagues and famines as technology gets bigger and bigger um, and there's more and more people. So it's, it's, um, it's how do we understand this? We, we can't fully understand it. So personally, I can't understand it all without the ideas of free will and redemptive suffering. So I wish you luck if you are going to spend a life trying to reconcile these the things that we suffer from, like um, addiction, suicide, murder, poverty, starvation, or rampant sexual sin, broken homes. Um, if you want to try to understand those things without free will and without a living God that allows us to sin out of out of love for us, like a loving Father, but yearns for us to return and repent, like prodigal sons, you can do that. 
um, it's quite clear that sin is the cause of all suffering. So yet a little voice is calling to us all if we will pause to listen for it. And only when we can, only uh, when we fold into the next phase as a more spiritually mature structure, when we allow God to take control and his will to be done for our lives, will we, will we receive anything from those, from that suffering? We won't understand what the idea of redemption is or redemptive suffering until we actually live it. And it is always the Cains of this world, as in Cain and Abel, that end up creating a living hell and trying to create heaven through power and technology and forcing people into things. It seems obvious at this point that the next serious famine will come when our machines stop working or electricity fails or where we finally poison most of the fresh water. But, you know, yet we will look back at those who lived humbly and sustainable sustainably in the Middle Ages and Dark Ages as ignorant fools, even though they lived in harmony harmony with nature in small communities, um, and kind of like the my goose family from the prior post living on the exit ramp. So we rush in our cars on massive highways, and, we, and if we happen to run over something, we don't really even stop. Uh, that's kind of the, pl- the plow of progress is what I'd call it. Um, William Blake was a writer who said had these little sayings called the proverbs of hell one of them was the cut worm forgives the plow which is saying the worm is cut in half but you know that's progress so he's going to forgive the plow that cut him in half that's that's really probably not true but um and then he had another one the busy bee has no time for sorrow that's kind of us today we're so busy we're so busy we don't really stop to think about just because we can do something should we do something? Um, that's so. These are not compliments from William Blake. The cutworm forgives the plow, and the busy bee has no time for sorrow. They are highways to hell. They're the proverbs of hell, and we willingly choose those paths. So we assume the march of progress will save us. But like Lamech and Cain, if you remember from last episode, talking about Lamech, who is like the probably the other than Samson, one of the most crazy people in the whole Bible. Um, the wise people of this age will be made fools. Lamech considers himself very wise, immune from any sort of repercussion. And now, you know, when we read about him, he looks foolish in light of Jesus, of how he lived. So St. Paul was really aware of this, and he saw that his own wisdom received it, revealed itself as foolish. And he said, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So, and then he adds, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So for anyone, especially in science, they would say, well, that's ridiculous that you would um, you'd believe in this fairy tale about God. And, and uh, what Paul is saying is that the wise of every age think they know better. Um, it's kind of like Piggy on, in Lord of the Flies, sort of intellectualizing how this island should be operating while um, Jack is knifing the wild boar and, and chasing Ralph down to kill him. There's, um, there's, it's 
there's this intellectualizing of it. And then there's the experience of how do you live? How do you conform your life to God's will? Obviously, Jack was not doing it either. So um, well, the only one that was was Simon, who gets killed, of course. So um, Cain never folded past his primary structure. If we go back to protein folding here before I get off in Lord of the Flies. Um, but in the saints, you see the change. You see the shift in this turning, this folding. So while we can look at Cain as this archetype of possession, his name means possession. He wants to have everything for himself. The saints, when you read the lives of the saints, they have this folding in their lives um, from primary to secondary to tertiary to quaternary. And if you ever read St. Augustine's Confessions, it's just all over in there how he's changing as his, his story is unfolding. This is how and why people change once they fully see Christ as God himself. What seemed wise before becomes foolish in light of faith. Um, it alters the meaning of every moment and interaction because the base fear of death is removed completely. And if you have humility, your pride pops. It goes away. It's it's like you, you don't have to deal with that anymore. So when that happens, the kingdom of God is already among us. It's suddenly visible even amid the suffering. So this protein folding metaphor can work on a social level or a personal level because it seems that if we are stuck in sin, we have not leveled up from primary structure. They call it the purgative way when you get into the, when you start to remove these mortal sins, it's like you're folding into the next shape. Or if we have folded into an advanced structure, but then fall back, we've gone through some denaturing process and we need to surrender to God once again to level up, to fold back out of that purgative state back into what they would say the illuminative and eventually the unitive. Um, so the funny thing, though, in the spiritual life is we fold or level up by going downward, like Dante going down into hell. We do it by kneeling. We let go and let God fold us into the shape he wants and prayer is the catalyst. So you need some kind of catalyst. A lot of times it's a compelling event in our lives that some sort of hitting bottom that will do this. Now, just to speak a little bit more about Cain, because who doesn't want to talk about Cain? He's very interesting. As for the mark of Cain, which protects him, he's marked, he's sort of protected. Um, he's He will be avenged sevenfold. If anyone kills him, someone will avenge uh, the, the death of Cain. But um, it's it, it's disturbing to many readers that he is not killed because he's killed Abel. So shouldn't there be like a death penalty? Well, if we're, if we're talking about development in the Old Testament, the death penalty actually doesn't come about until Noah's covenant is announced. And again, in the Mosaic law. So the whole eye for an eye thing, which everyone is um, always saying is the biblical way, or um, it is in the, in the Mosaic law. It was actually a better law than what the others were doing, uh, but that didn't come about initially. Cain is protected. So when you're reading it and you're saying, okay, what part of the Bible am I in? Am I before Noah? Am I before Moses? Am I before Jesus? Things are changing because the shape of the story is changing. Um, the world is still in primary structure when Cain commits sin and allows, allows it into the world. It's crouching at his door and he lets it in. Um, it's worth noting here also that in the book of Numbers, the Israelite law requires cities of refuge for accidental death or manslaughter and wandering exiles. So God's law shows mercy to those who haven't committed murder in malice or um, 
with like willful intent, even in the Mosaic law. So, but anyway, when Cain goes to and wanders as an exile, he is lost. He's in psychological torture, apparently. Um, he's turned away from God, it seems. Um, and, or, you know, perhaps he is saved in the end. We, we don't really know. It's like, it kind of seems like he wouldn't be, but we just don't know because who can, who can know that other than God? So just, you know, we can't know who is saved or who is not as the particular judgment of any person besides the canonized saints is known but to God alone. I don't believe the church even has a definitive um, decision on if Judas is in hell, but I, I, I believe he is. That's kind of the consensus. But who, who really knows that except for God, honestly? Um, and I think there's some articles out there about that, so you could go down that rabbit hole. But Cain is kind of a, a similar character where he seems bad. Um, Lamech also seems that way, but who's to say they didn't um, repent or something in their later years? So that's the beauty of of repentance and forgiveness. So in this in the story of, of Cain, his descendants accomplished much. They seized power and wealth and, and pleasure, but there's a problem with those pursuits is that this power lives in perpetual fear. It kind of gets stuck. It gets in perpetual fear of losing power and wealth is the same way it lives in perpetual fear of losing wealth. So pleasure lives in perpetual fear of, okay, yeah, you get the point, right? So we have a role to play in a much larger plan, even if we are just in our primary structure. And to play it properly, our highest loyalty must be to Christ, not to a nation, not to a president, and not to an ideology. If you need a key to understanding the Old Testament, it is this. People sin and things go badly, but it calls them to change, to fold into the next structure that leads them to their ultimate purpose. And this is the password to unlocking the mysteries. Everyone sins, everyone falls, but that is where the folding happens to allow us to fit into the puzzle of higher purpose. And Abraham sins by taking two wives. Um, he even gives his wife Sarah to save his own skin. You know, he gives him to the Egyptian king because uh, he's fearful. So he suffers for it. Um, Moses sins multiple times and he suffers for it. David sins so badly that even small children understand that what he did to Uriah is an incredibly dirty mafia hit. So for goodness sakes, um, Samson and Cain, and I won't get to Samson. That's going to be a whole, whole day's worth of talking if we get there. But so when the folding happens to us, where life and experience and time and age reshape us, we can either become static in an unending prideful pity party, or we can seek faith, hope, and charity. Even a protein knows that when change happens, it works toward the purpose for which God created it, which is to carry oxygen to our cells, for if it's hemoglobin. <laughs> when it is disordered, you have sickle cell anemia and other mal maladies, and some proteins malfunction just like some acorns never become oak trees. Such is God's will, and his God's way is beyond our pay grade of knowing, and even what we can know, we cannot fully understand. However, even a protein that malfunctions or an acorn that never germinates still is ready to attempt to live out its purpose. Even if deformed or broken, these mindless proteins and seeds, they know that to carry oxygen or to sprout a sapling is what they must do, if the conditions are right, and we are no different. Our primary structure is the joining of two cells, two cells, that's all we are first joined to one. And then we fold into a process um, of mitosis in our mother's wombs for nine months, 
and then we fold into the light when we are born, and then we fold into childhood, adolescence, adulthood, parenthood, and old age. And from the first cell, from that very first moment all the way to the cemetery, we have the same soul, just as the protein in its folding does not change but becomes capable in different ways. We are made to be human from the beginning with both a body and a soul, even if it's just a cell or if it's our old withered body in a nursing home someday. But we are made by God and for God. Thus, our ultimate purpose is not to make money or win honor here. It is to return to eternal life with God, who is the only being that can satisfy our souls. The hunger we have for meaning is the same as our cells for oxygen. Our bellies cry out for food, and we know food exists, so we eat. Our tongue notifies us that water is needed when we're thirsty, and water exists. And our heart yearns to have a relationship with God, with the Holy Family, and these things too exist. So when all of these other hungers, thirsts, and yearnings have corresponding solutions, so does the greatest desire of all, which is to be loved and to seek supreme happiness, which can be had in this life and the next. All right, that's all I have for this episode. We'll have one more in this series, I think. Thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying it.